This is Leaving Laodicea with Steve McCraney, and this is a podcast for those who realize that apathetic, lukewarm, flannel graph faith just isn't going to cut it in the chaos that surrounds us today. We need something more, something different. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. You remember correctly, uh, in the book of Revelation, um, the seven letters to the seven churches, they lay out for us church history perfectly, flawlessly. And uh, in these seven letters, the Lord says some good things and some bad things about his church. In, uh, in Revelation chapter 2, verse number 1, of course, it is the church of Ephesus. And in the church of Ephesus, he says some good things and some bad things. I, I appreciate your perseverance, but you've left your first love. That uh, We find the persecuted church, the church of Smyrna, which means crushed or myrrh in verse number 8. And here he only said good things only. There were two churches that the Lord only said good things about. There were two churches that the Lord only said bad things about. And there were the other churches are the ones that he said both good and bad. In verse number 12, we have the letter to the church of Pergamos. Of course, this is the medieval church. It takes us up until, you know, about uh, 606 B.C. when Boniface III was named the first pope. Here there are good things and bad things that are said. We have the church of Thyatira and verse number 18. This is, of course, what we would know as the Catholic Church. Runs from about 606 up into the tribulation period. And even in the Catholic Church, which we have serious problems with because we are Protestants or Protestants, the Lord says good and bad things. But then we look at chapter 3, all excited, verse number 1, where it talks about the church in Sardis, which is basically the Reformation church, the church that came out of. And, and it begins about 1520 and goes all the way to the tribulation period. And we find in this church, the church that we get our foundation from, the church that captured salvation by grace, through faith, plus or nothing else, we find the church says, the Lord says, nothing good about. I find that sobering. I find that troubling. One of the reasons is the fact, he says, that your work is not complete. Of course, they never dealt with Israel. They never dealt with end-time eschatology. And what happened in 1520 and following is the church ceased to speak it as one voice. Instead, they splintered into nine million different denominations or factions or groups, all warring with each other for the past four or 500 years. We divide up on... Bible translations and whether it's we keep the temperature at 72 or 68 or or how we dress or how we pray or or whether we use the gifts in a worship service or whether we don't, just a million different reasons. I remember many, many years ago uh, when I first looked at this, we're 20-something years ago, that just when it comes to Baptist churches, there were over 900 different brands of just Baptist churches. But after the church in Sardis, we have verse number seven, the church in Philadelphia. And a church in Philadelphia is a church the Lord only said good things about. He said good things about the church that suffered immense persecution, but he also said good things about the church here in Philadelphia. Only good things. And this takes about, you know, if you're looking at dates here, you're looking at uh, 1750 
on, and the Lord promises that this particular church would be, uh, we wouldn't suffer the great tribulation that's going to happen to the entire world. And then, of course, we roll into the Laodicean church age, which is the age in which we live. The word Laodicea, as I've shared with you before, means the rule of the people or the people rule. It's all about us. It's all about our narcissistic little self. Church is to satisfy us. We want to listen to the music that we want to listen to. We want to hear the preaching that affirms what we believe and what we want to hear. We want the place comfortable. We want activities. We want Bible translations that are dumbed down to the point that a fifth grader can read them because we don't want to take any time to really try to study and see what it is. We want it about us. The Lord says absolutely nothing good about the church age in which we live. As a matter of fact, he says in Revelation 3.20 that I stand outside the church and I'm knocking on the door to get in and that the church would simply open the door and let me in that I will dine with you and you with me. And the fact that the church in Laodicea is like it is literally makes the Lord sick. And we know all this. I've taught on this and we've talked about this and leaving Laodicea, the whole book was the idea of moving out of the church age in which we live. The problem is it's in our DNA. It's in my DNA. It's just, it's like being an American. We view everything through the free market. We do everything, we view everything through our understanding, our cultural understanding of things. And it works exactly the same way when it comes to the church. And the Holy Spirit many times is devoid in our worship services. We find Christians who don't live sanctified lives. You go on Facebook, which breeds narcissism, by the way, because anyway, I want to go into that. We, um, we go on Facebook and we find Christians that are exalting movies that would make a lost person blush because it's okay. You know, there's no church discipline. There's, there's no accountability. You do what you do. I do what I do. Don't ask, don't tell. We just kind of rock on together and, and why? We even model our church services. This is something the Lord has been really dealing with me about. Model our church services based on what we've always known by other people who were raised and trained in the Laodicean church age. Um, you know, Vic uh, brought up a point Wednesday night about when we have group prayer. You know, we, we take prayer requests from everybody and then... I've thought about this for months because it's not the first time he's mentioned it. We take prayer requests from everybody, and then we ask one person to pray. And then one person to pray prays the prayer request that we basically just asked about, and uh, the rest of us sit usually and listen. True? We listen. It's really hard to pray if somebody else is praying, and so you know we don't, we don't really do it that way. Is, is that proper? Would it be better if we just all prayed? If we did the prayer request, we just asked everybody to pray. And in some churches that do that, they all pray out loud at the same time. I've been to those kind of churches. It's rather frightening. They have no idea what's going on. And, and then, or do we just pray silently? I mean, I mean, what's the way the Lord wants it done? When it comes to the music we listen to in church, we listen to music we like. We listen to music that's popular. I like, um, I like some of the songs we sang today. I just like them. Uh, they're, they're catchy. They're kind of like the stuff you listen on the radio. And I guess radio songs that are catchy to me should be the songs that glorify the Lord, right? I mean, because if I like it, then he should like it. And if I go back and sing something out of the 1840s, some Fanny Crosby song done like they did it then with no instruments and the kind of stuff that we like, and I don't like that. So if I don't like that, God doesn't like that. And, and we got all this confusion 
of where does it where does it become about us and when does it become all about him? So I have recently been going back and looking at the Philadelphia church age. I know the Lord was honored then. I know what the Philadelphia church age did please the Lord because it says so here in the book of Revelation. And, and how did they do church? What did they argue about and fight about? How, how long were their sermons and what were their worship services like? And especially, what can I learn from them? I mean, what, what can I learn from them? For the past, actually, I'll go ahead and be totally honest with you. We haven't had the Lord's Supper here in a while. Uh, we usually do it once a month, but we haven't had it for a couple months because I, it doesn't feel right to me. I want to I wanna make sure that we're doing this right, and I don't know how. I mean, I don't. I only know what I've been taught. I only know what I've experienced. I only know what other Laodicean church churches and pastors and authors and stuff of that nature have taught me about how to do the Lord's Supper and what it means. I, I, I've never experienced the Lord's Supper in the Philadelphia church age. I never experienced what, what that is all about. And so I've tried over the years to try to figure out a way that, that maybe we can do this and experience this communion that comes with the Lord. And until we can experience that, until I figured out a way to make that happen, I have been negligent to even go through the motions. So do we pass it out? Well, that's how they always did it when I was growing up. Or, or do we have a private time where people come up here? So, so we tried that. One time we tried to put everybody in a circle. Do you remember? Put everybody in a circle so that we can face each other and like share like a meal. You know, and in a meal, we're not sitting like this. I mean, if you came to my house to eat and you were sitting at the table and I got a chair directly behind you and ate my meal, you would think, well, that's kind of weird. And so we kind of put everybody in a circle, maybe to see if that would give us a little more, I don't know, fellowship or communion or, or feel like we were doing something together. And we hated it. Did we not? Hardly ever hear any complaints. But the biggest complaint I ever heard was, please don't put us in a circle again. Why? I, I don't I don't want to look at someone's face, I assume. I'd rather just look at the back of their head. Why? Because I'm comfortable doing that in a teaching kind of setting, like a mini amphitheater. Okay. Well, then how about this? Why don't we just have a meal? So we set tables up. Do you remember? We set tables up, and, and we'll just do it like they really do. We'll actually have a meal. We'll partake of the Lord's Supper. You know, we'll partake of our meal together and see how that worked. And nobody really liked that either. Why? I mean, I, I'm, how, how does this thing work? How did you do it back during the Philadelphia church age? And let me tell you what I've learned. I've learned that it has absolutely nothing to do with mechanics. It has nothing to do with whether you use real wine or grape juice, where people go to fight over, or whether the bread is unleavened bread or the kind of bread that the leavened bread we use here. I've had people leave our church because they didn't use unleavened bread, the little bread dough things. Okay. Um, we, uh, we, we, you know, is, is it about whether we pass it out? Does somebody, everybody drink out of the same cup? And if we don't want to do that and, and okay, what well, is, is it about that? Is it about the music we play during the Lord's Supper? Is it about where we place it in the service or how long it is? Or, or is it about how you read those passages in Corinthians about, about it or, or how long we take to examine our soul? I mean, what is it that made 
the church in the Philadelphia church age so powerful and so loved by the Lord that the great missionary movements were started that way versus what I've always known and what you pretty much have always known. I mean, how how does that work? So I started taking a look at it, and I realized that the key to this has nothing to do with the trappings of the mechanics. It has to do with the preparation. Do you know, in the Philadelphia church age, their worship services were a little bit different than ours. You would start out with what they called a pastoral prayer, and those prayers were written down. What, we have to write a prayer down? Well, yeah, so you don't just come up and wing it. You know, again, when I was growing up as a kid um, in a Baptist church, they would always have the chairman of the deacons or somebody come up and do the offertory prayer. And again, this was in the early 70s and late 60s. And they would always say the same phrases, bring our boys home from Vietnam, lead, guide, and direct us. And, you know, it's almost like a, like a mantra that you end up saying. And that's all we've ever known. But in the Philadelphia church age, they would actually write their prayers down and they would pass those prayers out or make them available to the congregation so the congregation would be able to take those long prayers home to be able to, to study them. And they were full of scripture and admonition and, and to pray those prayers also. Very few churches, there are a few out there that I, that I, uh, I follow, very few churches ever do that. Here's what we like to do. For example, instead of... Um, Instead of just having everybody just pray, I'm using this as an example, what we'll do is we'll have one member of our congregation, one head of a household, one male, come up here every Sunday and read or pray their invocation prayer, their, their opening prayer, their, their pastoral elder prayer. But we want it written down so that we can pass it out and make it available to all the congregation. How many people would like to come up and do that? None. Hardly any. Can't even get people to come up and hardly pray. Oh, I gotta pray. Okay. <clears throat> you know, because we, we, we've dumbed it down. That's all we've ever known. That we don't have to do anything because the hired holy man does. It wasn't that way in the Church of Philadelphia at all. And in, 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 in that church, I mean, one of the most powerful parts of the entire service was not the praise and worship time. It was the opening prayer. And then there was a couple songs that affirmed the loving deity of Christ. There weren't, they weren't songs like our culture sings today, which is pretty much from our vantage point, what God has done for me. It was all about who he is, exalting him, like what Vic read today. A mighty fortress is our God. The Lord's Supper was something that they prepared for for a week. For a week, I was going to have the Lord's Supper today, but um, we're not. We are going to have it next week. And uh, the ladies are going to have the Lord's Supper at, the, um, at their retreat on Sunday morning uh, there. Because we're going to give everybody an opportunity to prepare for the Lord's Supper like they prepared for it in the early church. I have here a handout I want to give you guys. What I have before you is uh, simply some prayers that uh, the early church, uh, the church in Philadelphia practice, that I want to offer to you as a preparation time for the Lord's Supper. There's some scripture verses and there's some prayers. And what I've done is I've gone through, this is their prayers actually, 
what I've done is I've gone through and I tried the best of my ability to make it less King James-ish. I've taken out the thous and the thys and I've added to it your and yours and stuff of that nature to make it a little easier to read. When we come to the Lord's Supper, we're really coming as an invitation to dine with the Lord. And so, as with anything, you would think there would be some preparation that was involved in that. So let me go over these real quickly with you. I'm only going to read one or two of these prayers. You can read the rest of them yourself and kind of get a flow of it. But on Monday, tomorrow, what I want you to do is I want you to begin thinking about the preparation for the Lord's Supper next week. Envision it as Jesus asking you to dine with him. So much so that he says, I have earnestly, earnestly desired with fervent desire to share this meal with you before I suffer. It's like the last meal. It's like the last time we're going to spend time with him eating a meal together, celebrating the Passover before he is gone. And the Lord took great measures in preparing for this. For example, in Mark chapter 14, you know, we think that what the disciples got together and they just came in and all the stuff was set up and, oh, I have no idea. I guess we're having Lord's Supper today. I mean, look what the Lord did here. This is Matthew chapter 14. He says, now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, which was Christ, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? There's some element of work here involved. Where would you like us to go? And Jesus didn't say, oh, I don't care. He arranged this all in advance. So he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into a city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared there make ready for us. I mean, the Lord already prepared this. He had it already worked out. Whether it was supernatural or whether he worked out beforehand is open to debate. But the reality is when he came to prepare, I am going to dine with the Lord. I am going to fellowship with the Lord. I am going to share in his broken body and shed blood. I am going to be a partaker symbolically of the suffering that he went through for my salvation. He has invited me to come. He has honored me to be one of those guests to come. And I will begin preparing my heart for that even now. There is a prayer here, Monday morning, that talks about that. Lord, would you, if you read this prayer, it basically says, deliver me from all the superficiality, all the idleness, all the apathy, all the stupid stuff that I spend my time doing, all the haphazardless that, that I had that I, that I come in here like it's nothing. Oh, Lord's Supper today. Oh, okay. We're just going to go through some sort of religious ritual. Deliver me from all that and let me see the gravity of what we're about to do. How I'm about to partake of this with you. So I'm going to ask you. I've given you a handout. There's verses at the top. There's a prayer that you can pray, and this is the same prayer that was prayed by many churches and the Philadelphia church age. Something may be uncomfortable for us. Will you prepare to dine with him next Sunday? Tuesday, who is this person I'm dining with? I mean, who, who is this person? Someone who fervently desires to dine with you. 
Jesus says in Luke 22, 15, with fervent desire, I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And all we have to do is embrace him and open the door and allow him to come in and he will have that kind of fellowship with us. Let me give you an example of the kind of prayer that they prayed back then. I'm just going to read this to you. Eternal love, what am I that you should desire to eat with me? Lord, it is too great a wonder that you should earnestly desire to eat with me, with me, who have desired so little to eat with you, who have longed so much more for the food that perishes and for the fellowship of the world than for you and your heavenly bread. My Lord, give me so to feel the desire of your soul to eat with me, that my sluggishness and my unbelief shall be ashamed, and all that is within me may prepare to set my heart open with joy before you. Lord, too long I have suffered you to stand at the door and knock. Now I will open it to you. Make even my heart a banquet hall furnished and prepared where you may make ready the Passover. Let the sight of your blood poured out for me be the full assurance of redemption. Let the eating of the lamb fill me with the power of a heavenly life. Let the eating with you be fellowship with you, and your love be the joy of my soul. Blessed Jesus, let the love of your heart which draws you to me also draw me to you. My Savior, it is this especially that I crave at your hand. Unveil me to the love of your heart that makes you long so much after me. I know that this is one of the secret things that remain for your dearest friends, and I hardly dare reckon myself among them. And yet, Lord, may I venture to do so? Grant me, I pray, one more glance into your heart, that I may know how earnestly you desire to eat with me. Let my soul conceive what it is to have me at your table with this great desire, that you would have me as your possession. You would enter into the deepest communion with me, You would communicate yourself to me. You would become one with me. You would have me for yourself. My Jesus, if this is really so, cause me to feel it. Let not my heart remain in darkness. Then I shall turn away from all else, and my life shall be filled with one supreme desire, to eat with Jesus, my King and my friend. Precious Jesus, grant that this indeed be so. Amen. I'm preparing myself to meet with the Lord of Lords. And how do I do that? By self-examination. I look at my own life. I'm getting ready to go into the King of Kings, who's omniscient among all things, and, and I'm going to dine with him at his table, and I want to make sure that I do that with clean hands and a pure heart. And so we look at a few verses. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, before you even eat of the Lord's Supper, you should examine yourself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. But the first examination you need to make sure is that you truly belong to him, that you truly belong to him. And if you do belong to him, that you're in fellowship with him. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourself as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. We have a prayer here that they prayed to help you do that. The second paragraph, of old, 
you yourself did see it that hypocrites should be cast out from the midst of your people. You did point out Achan. You did make known the man who dipped his hand in a dish with your son. You detected Ananias. You are the king who comes in to scrutinize the guests that have sat down saying, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And on and on. Thursday, once we've examined ourselves, there's a time of a confession of sin. And you notice I have these things Thursday morning. Give the Lord the first part of the day. And just stop having it be all about us. Lord, I want to I fellowship with you first thing. I mean, we do it with our spouse. We wake up in the morning. We have breakfast with our spouse. We want to spend a little time with our kids. We want to kiss our wife before we go to work. I mean, if we just got up and just left and said nothing to her, I'll call you. I'll see you when I get home. We would cause that. that that's just rude. You confess your sins. Psalm 38, 18. For I will declare my iniquity. I will be in anguish over my sins. Job 13, 23. How many are my iniquities and sin? Make me know my transgression and my sin. And when you do confess your sin and mourn over your sin, the scripture says that God will forgive you and you shall be comforted. And so you pray that prayer of the confession of sins. This prayer talks about how omniscient God is and how he sees everything and how you place yourself in, in the hands of a mighty God to search me and know my hearts and the sins that I have committed. And it's all part of a preparation to be able to dine with him on Sunday. But in the process of doing that, you find your own spirit renewed day by day. On Friday, you must believe when you confess your sins that the Lord forgives your sins. And there's a time of, of restoration. We find that in, in Luke where he said to her, this is a lady who came and, and anointed Christ. Your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? And then he said to the woman, your faith, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so there's a prayer of, of faith in here. It talks about the renewing of the Holy Spirit in your life, the, the, the fact that if Jesus has promised to forgive you of your sins, that you are forgiven, that you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive you of those sins. Second to the last paragraph, my God, grant me to hold fast by this truth and with every fresh sin to flee always straight to the blood of Christ. Grant that I may sit down at your table with the blessed joy of a firm faith in the great promise of the new covenant, which is I will be gracious to your iniquities and your sins and transgressions I will remember no more. As we've gone through this week preparing ourselves for the Lord's Supper, it brings us to Saturday, which is the Sabbath to the Jews. To us is the day prior to that. And it's a time of self-surrender. I have recognized who God is. I begin to ask him to make preparation in my heart. I have recognized the host of this dinner, the Lord Jesus Christ. I have examined my heart. I've confessed my sins. I believed in faith that his blood was sufficient. And now I'm going to surrender my life to him in freshness anew. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Chapter 5. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, what? 
that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live, every one of us, should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. The prayer, probably the most important prayer of surrender. My Father, you call me to your table to participate by faith anew in the sacrifice of your Son. This is not something light. This is not some ordinance. It's much deeper than that. I cry to you in turn to make me partaker of the power, the inclination, and the spirit of his self-sacrifice, that I in fellowship with him may in like manner offer myself up to you. Through the eternal spirit, he offered himself up to God. My God, let the same spirit make me also on my part a complete offering to you. It's like the Romans 12 passage. My Father, grant unto me that the self-offering constitutes the essence and the worth of his sacrifice. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service based on the worth of what he has already done. Let the surrender of my feeling and will to the will of God be the mark of my piety. Yes, Lord, let me live as one who offers himself wholly to the desire of God and man to further your honor and their salvation. My Father, at the supper, I desire to truly present myself as a living, holy sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, an offering that we shall be wholly consumed. For this sin, I entreat you for grace to prepare myself for the sacrifice, as your son prepared himself for the sacrifice on Golgotha, by saying, "My not my will, but yours be done. So when I offer myself as a sacrifice to you with the complete surrender of my will, May your will be all in all for me, O my Lord. Lord, enable me to say in truth, I live only to do the will of God. In the strength of Jesus Christ who lives in me and in whom I offer myself to you, I venture to make his language my own. I come to do your will, O God. Lord, prepare me also to say I desire here before you to renounce every known and unknown sin. All self-seeking and self-will I desire to abandon before you. I take Jesus Christ as my holiness, my strength, my victory. And in virtue of the new nature which he's prepared for me, I say, Father, no more sin. But your will only, your will holy, your will always and in all. Lord Jesus, who did give himself for me, I give myself to you. Yes, Lord, in this very moment, were I in solitude am this morning preparing myself for the supper, I say before heaven and earth, Jesus, Son of God, I will give myself wholly to you to live now and henceforth only for you. Lord Jesus, I do this now. And as one who is offered to the Father and to you, I will go to the supper table, there to be confirmed in the faith and confession, I am no longer my own, I have been bought with a high price. I will glorify God in my body and my spirit, which are God's. And then on Sunday morning, next Sunday, there is a divine invitation where the Lord is asking us to come fellowship with him. Some of us will do that at the beach and fellowship with each other. The rest of us will do that here. It's Matthew twenty-two fourteen, 14, where the Lord talks about this. 
Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fatted cattle are killed. All things are ready. Come to the wedding. And are we willing to do that? Because we are, we are invited. So I'm going to ask you this week, if you would just take this and make this a time of prayer every morning, in addition to what else you do, make it a time of prayer that you prepare your heart for the Lord's Supper. And maybe, just maybe, when we come together as a body or as individuals, we can experience some sort of oneness that comes just from knowing him. Amen? Let me pray.